You are listening to the official podcast of the First Baptist Church of Hamilton, Illinois, a church committed to Christ and His Word. We exist to glorify God through unity, love, and maturity. It's Ecclesiastes 6, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Please follow along as I read. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place." All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Amen. Does anybody know why we say amen after we pray or read scripture? It comes from the Greek word of amen, which means the truth. So there's a little fun fact for you this morning. Today marks our halfway point through Ecclesiastes. Who knew it was going to take us the majority of a year to get there? I thought it would be a good idea to give a summary of where we're at. And so far, the, the preacher, or Kohelet, as it's, he's called in Hebrew, has told us that all is hevel, which is vanity, a mist, a vapor, an idol. He has written to us about indulgence and everything from food to money to indulgence of work. He has told us there's a time for every matter, from being born to dying, from weeping to laughing, from love to hate, and from war to peace. He has reminded us that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. Our mortality. Or a couple weeks ago, like dirt, like I called everybody. As many of you have continuously reminded me. Yeah, it was good, see? He has reminded us to fear God, to guard ourselves against the vanity of wealth and honor, essentially to remember our place in the grand scheme of things. Remember from our first week, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. In multiple places, we've read about money and toiling many times over. In fact, we could say he's a bit obsessive about these matters. However, if you remember, repetition is something to take note of when we see it in Scripture. Sometimes we see emphasis and repetition to get the point of cross, much akin to beating the proverbial dead horse. 
Other times we see repetition and glance past it because we think something along the lines of, oh no, he's on about it again. But when we do that, we can miss an entirely different emphasis than what he had stated before. So we would do well to keep our eyes sharply focused as we study. Right off the bat, we find him saying, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it is a grievous evil. Now, if you've been keenly observant, you may notice that he calls this evil, but not just evil, a grievous evil. It's, it's sickening to him. We find him lamenting. He's in a state of depression here. How coincidental that all the wealth, possessions, and honor are unable to be enjoyed by him. We know from the first chapter that he had it all, but never found joy. Chapter 6 is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. He bemoans the fact that he has all of these things and no satisfaction is to be found. It's the opposite of a late night infomercial. Satisfaction is not guaranteed. We see a tremendously heavy amount of human emotions at play here. Remember, not that long ago, he was saying that there could not be joy outside of God, and now he is seemingly angry or upset with God. If you remember back a week or two, we talked about the preacher reminding us about gifts we receive from God, and now he's telling us that not only does God have the ability to give us these gifts, but he has the power to keep us from enjoying them. When this happens in life, we get upset, right? We get angry, we get mad, but we don't have any right to do this. We have no business getting angry with God. Perhaps God's withholding our enjoyment because it, would be to, it wouldn't be to our benefit for us to enjoy them. Remember, God sees the big picture where our scope is limited in view. Maybe God in his providential care knows since it's our nature to idolize things that maybe we would idolize the gifts over the gift giver. There's a great danger in this. Therefore, we should praise God that he in his kindness keeps us from moving our focus off of him. There could also be a test of our faith to see if we are going to keep focus on God in these moments. Now, I want to make a clear distinction with what I just said. I did not say that this would be a temptation. I said it would be a test. You see, God does not tempt us, but he does test us. And we see this in James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I'm sure at this point, questions have popped into your mind, perhaps along the lines of, well, why would God do that? Why would he give us something but not give us the ability to enjoy it? That seems rather cruel, right? But you see, what God is doing is pointing out our emptiness. He's exposing our need for him. When you have it all and still feel empty, God has just exposed your emptiness and only he can fill it. This is the only place that satisfaction is guaranteed. 
He compares this line of thought of all of this toil and no enjoyment in a dark way. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? We see his emptiness. He's essentially saying it's better to have never been born. How many times have you heard that or even maybe said that? Man, things are so bad, I just, it would have been better if I wasn't born. I mean, I know growing up, I stopped up to my mom and dad and I said, I wish I was never born. This is exactly what he's saying, but in much darker terms. He's telling us the reality of a broken world. We often do not understand that reality of what sin has done to this world and how badly it has corrupted us. When we do not have the gospel of Jesus Christ to rest on, this is the position we find ourselves in. That it would have been better if we had never been born. Think about that. One commentator says of this, Remember when the preacher says all of this, he is leaving God out of it for the moment. He is thinking mainly in terms of life under the sun, but not in terms of life after death and all the promises God has made about the coming of his kingdom. This life is not all there is. Jesus proved that when he died and rose again, bringing the light of the resurrection out of the darkness of the grave. When believers are buried and when they bury their little children, it is always in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. And it's true. Every funeral we have as believers, we do it with the hope and anticipation that God will raise us with his son. And you see, at this moment, the preacher king does not give us the gospel. And you might expect it in this moment because it's very dark. And usually when there's dark and bad, you get hit with the good. You get hit with the good news of Jesus. But he doesn't do that. He offers to us a reality of where the world is currently sitting. If the world as it is does not offer a claim of satisfaction guaranteed, it seems that the appropriate thing to do is to want less out of life. But we in our brokenness and our sin never do that. How do I know this? Just look at the closing verses today. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. 
We turn away from our focus on God because our appetite wanders. This comes in many forms from sexual immorality by lusting, having affairs, etc. It comes by not trusting the Lord our God and taking matters into our own hands. It comes in many forms. Now, you may not know that my favorite book of the New Testament is Hebrews. I love that book. And in Hebrews 10, I found a few verses that really hit me hard when I was studying this week. Hebrews 10, 35 through 39 says this, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let us compare against what happens if we do turn back. In my studies this week, I come across this reference, and this reference is talking about Pompeii, when Vesuvius erupted. Almost everybody's heard of this place, where it basically buried everybody, this whole town, in volcanic ash, and their bodies are still in the positions that they died. They've done a lot of excavations there. And this is what it says. It says, quote, A striking example of perpetual dissatisfaction comes from the excavations at the city of Pompeii. When Vesuvius erupted and Pompeii was buried, many people perished with their body shapes, postures, and in some instances, their facial expressions preserved in volcanic ash. One woman's feet were pointed in the direction of the city gate, headed for safety, yet her face was turned back to look at something just beyond the reach of her outstretched hands. She was grasping for a prize, a bag of beautiful pearls. Whether suddenly she remembered that she had left the pearls behind or else saw that someone else had dropped them as she was running for her life, the woman was frozen in a pose of unattainable desire, end quote. You see, she had been heading to the city gate, trying to escape this volcano, and she thought of some riches, and she turns her body to grab them, and at that moment, her life was over because she turned her focus from where it should have been on that city gate. She turned from life to death. We are all tempted to turn from life to death. In other words, to turn from God, which is life, to sin, which is death. This is our wandering appetite, as I previously mentioned. Now, when we look at the whole of today's text, we can look at it as almost comical. I'm not talking about a comical sense of ha-ha, rather a sense of comical that it's so bad it's funny. More along the lines of irony. It's ironic. It reminded me of Dante Alighieri and his poem, The Divine Comedy. As I was studying, I read through the text, which is usually where I start. I read through it and I thought, well, I'm sure somebody somewhere probably thought this was funny. That's usually where we get this whole divine comedy thing from. And some of you may or may not be familiar with Dante's 
Divine Comedy, but it is considered one of the greatest works in human literature. It is an imaginative vision of the afterlife with a medieval worldview as it existed in the Western church by the 14th century. It describes Dante's travels through hell, purgatory, and heaven. Now, we as Protestants don't believe in purgatory because there's no biblical backing for the existence of such a place. But he was a product of his time. And this was when the Catholic Church was still early in its infancy before, infancy before they really went out on the deep end in their theology. However, there are a few parts that tie to our text today so much that I felt it was important to read a little section of this poem. And in this first section, Dante is in hell, which is what he calls the Inferno. The poem begins the night before Good Friday in the year 1300. He says, Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, which in Italian means midway upon the journey of our life. This implies that Dante was around 35 years old, since the Bible gives us an understanding that the average lifespan is 70 years. Dante says this, And I, whose heart was well nigh broken, said, Now, teacher, show me who these people are, and tell me whether all these tonsured ones upon our left ecclesiastics were. And he replied to me, They each and all were in their first life so squint-eyed in mind that they with measure used no money there. Clearly enough, their voices bark it forth whenever they reach the two points of the ring where difference and fault unmadeth them. These churchmen were who have no hairy covering upon their heads and popes and cardinals among whom avarice, avarice being greed, works its mastery. And I to him, among such men as these, I surely, teacher, ought to recognize a few who by these sins polluted were. And he to me, thou shapest a vain thought, the undiscerning life which made them foul, now to all recognition makes them dark. To these two shocks they'll come eternally. These from the sepulcher will rise again, close-fisted. These, shorn of their very hair, ill-giving and ill-keeping, took from them the lovely world and set them at this fray. To qualify it, I'll not use fair words. Now canst thou, son, behold the short-lived cheat of riches that are put in fortune's care, and for whose sake the human race contends, for all the gold there is beneath the moon, and all that was there once could not avail to make one of these weary spirits rest. You see, Dante tells us something very profound here. These people now in hell were so squint-eyed in their first life that they squandered their good gifts. Now, what does it mean to be squint-eyed? When you squint your eyes, you squint them when you focus. When you focus so much that you squint your eyes, you get tunnel vision. You don't give any concern other than what you're focused on. Everything outside of that tunnel is irrelevant. You're neglecting everything and everyone around you and losing focus. And losing that focus, especially on God, is a surefire way to end up in hell like these people with Dante in this poem. 
And while, yes, God is our primary focus, he never calls us to neglect our families. He never calls us to neglect being wise stewards of our time, money, and talents. So our application in all of this is to not have such a focus on the things of life that do not matter to the point we cannot see anything or anyone else around us. Eventually, a squinted focus will lead to blurred vision, and when we look toward Jesus, we want a crisp, crystal clear view. We remind ourselves from today's text that it is better to have never been born than to go through life with an improper focus, with our eyes fixed on anything but Jesus would be an improper focus. We're going to transition into communion now, and as we take communion, let us be reminded by the words of Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six through 29. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats or and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We do this in remembrance of our Lord. If we are remembering him, our focus is on him. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take communion and conclude today's service with our final song. Let's pray. Father, as we take communion and sing our final song of worship, let us be reminded of the truth that Christ is ours and we are his. Let us have a clear view that although you may not give us what we want, you have given us all that we need in your son, Jesus. Give us a clear and correct focus on Jesus that we remember his sacrifice always. And it is his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the official podcast of the First Baptist Church of Hamilton, Illinois. If you have questions about today's message, please reach out to us via our website at www.fbcofhamilton.com.